0: Alright, so this is the Eli Cavea project and I'm uh, really happy to have one of my good friends Jake Malarios, uh, on the call right now and we're going to talk about quantum computing. Alright Jake, you start us off.
1: Hey everyone, so great to, uh, great to be here Eli and thanks for having me, so uh, just just a quick little thing where I'm coming from, uh, I studied ph- uh, physics with Eli, in an undergraduate, and uh, uh, now I'm quite involved with the AI and quantum computing space. I've uh, been doing some consulting work with uh, universities and uh, with different industries, uh, and now I'm transitioning into a bit of a quantum startup. Um, well, so we'll see where that's going. I'm um, going to be working with uh, hopefully a CDL here, so uh, which is an organization out of Toronto that, that kind of supports these uh, quantum ecosystem and quantum startups uh, emerging now. So uh, yeah, so Eli, let's uh, let's start it off here. Um, first off, I'd like to say that. Uh, where quantum computing is today, um, is probably very surprising and exciting for a lot of the scientists and people who are working on it 10, 20 years ago, uh, where they really were in the theory phase and really just getting first things in the lab. Uh, but really today we're starting to find applications and we're starting to find it, uh, go right into commercialization and industry. Um, we're really just touching the, the tip of the iceberg, but, um, ultimately, uh, it's an interesting balance where we find challenges within the current technology and what's currently available. Um, and where we're finding access to, to basically tools we never had before.
0: So like one thing I was going to ask you, Jake was like, um, like what I know from like quantum field theory is like, you know, quantum fields are correlated. You can calculate correlation functions. So like the field at this point X affects the field at this point Y. And when I was studying condensed matter, it turns out that these get a lot more complicated, like the, the correlation lengths that you calculate because, you know, there there ends up being like degeneracy in the ground states, right? And you would obviously need a ground state to know the difference between like a one or a zero, which is, you know, the basic thing you want to you know, have in, in computer science. So can you tell me about like some of the um, ideas that are out now that are more modern about how we're going to build bigger quantum computers?
1: Yeah. So, and just along the lines of the quantum field theory perspective, which really is a lot about, you know, an ensemble of particles, so many particles that are interacting, um, that essentially it becomes a macroscopic phenomenon. And a lot of the macroscopic things we, we observe in nature are really uh, an emerging property of this. So, Ideally, the future fault-tolerant computers are, are going to be similar to this, where we're going to have so many qubits, these fundamental uh, components of these quantum computers, that it essentially is going to act um, uh, in a sense like an emerging um, property of quantum information and an emerging sense of how we see these quantum fields happen in nature. Now, when it comes to this uh, perspective of entanglements and where multiple... Uh, you know, individual quantum particles can interact um, over various distances, um, but still have uh, an immense amount of relationship. Um, we we really see this behavior happen as one of the fundamental reasons quantum computing can generate and bring value. So, what we're actually seeing is uh, two directions in the initial. We're seeing one of the sides going in quantum devices, quantum sensors in particular, Mm -hmm. which are actually using ensembles of particles. For example, rubidium ions um, were used to entangle thousands of of little rubidium ions together using lasers. Um, And there actually, there was one company using this to create very efficient quantum sensors. And um, people were repurposing it for brain scan technology, for uh, meteorology, Mm -hmm. uh, for mining industry and all sorts of different aspects of basically sensing nature more than ever before. Um, You know, also work being done like this, uh, more in the discrete perspective, like squid technology, which is uh, one of the most sensitive magnetic field detectors uh, ever to be created. Um, But these are working more fundamental on a single quanta of information. One change of a particle can have enough to um, give you information about the system. The other side of the coin is the quantum computing perspective, which is a little bit more to do with these discrete movements of information, the same way we would, on a classical, build up um, a larger macroscopic perspective using small changes uh, discreetly. Um, Now, that is very dependent on entanglement at scale, and really one of our biggest challenges right now is building fault-tolerant quantum computers that require mass scale of correlated uh, entangled particles that are essentially using this entanglement to help correct for errors. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we can't rely on the same methods classical uh, had for error correction, um, and that has forced us to use um, some of these quantum methods so stably um, in, in order to to proceed with fault tolerance.
0: And I guess you would say that like we can't use the classical ways of error correction because of the types of fluctuations we get from quantum systems compared to, like, what you'd usually see in a classical system.
1: Correct. And there's also a a theorem uh, called the no-cloning theorem, which is essentially the barrier that um, scientists have faced in uh, creating a replica of our classical um, error correction methods. So just as a quick recap, classical error correction, a lot of it is built on these error correcting codes and this concept of redundancy. In information, So if I'm sending it even as a communication protocol, let's say I have a satellite, and it's sending information to Earth, well, some of it's going to be lost in the atmosphere. So what they do is they basically copy the channel information to many more bits so that if some of the bits were lost, they look at the majority of the data, and then they can take that majority and essentially see hmm. what the final result is. Piece of Unfortunately, the no-cloning theorem prevents us from copying Quantum information because we can't measure mm-hmm. the quantum system without changing it, mm-hmm. um, and hmm. this this opens the door for a new set of opportunities, but also problems.
0: Wow. Okay. Wow. That's uh, that's a lot to take in. So, like, the basic, <laughs> the basic, you know, it's Schrödinger's cat, but well, you know, when uh, when you have a you have a bunch of cats, and so you can't, you know, you can't reproduce either one. You don't know if it's alive or dead. But, yeah, I didn't. I never yeah. thought of it that way. So tell me some of the stuff. Um, I guess it's uh, that you're doing.
1: Yeah. Uh, so recently, so from from the perspective of what I've been interested, in, I think air correction um, is one of those areas where if we don't find a way to kind of approach this problem differently, we're not going to get to that end goal of having these devices that are essential enhance our experience on computers and the problems we can solve and approach. Um, Because really the importance of this is the fact that we can't solve certain problems with computers right now that uh, are just inaccessible with the the computational space we have. Like, for example, during this crisis of COVID-19, we don't have the power to simulate the drugs or basically uh, discover the drugs that might actually help this. Uh, And we have to rely on more heuristics and conventional um, uh, approaches that rely on experience of individuals, which are helpful, but not necessarily optimal for finding these solutions. Um, So in decades to come, it it won't be soon for something like a a virus like COVID, but in decades to come, we will definitely have much more accessible tools to to handle these problems. Um, Now, the more immediate side of what, um is is going to happen is what i'm also very interested in and this is where it brings me to uh, not error correction but i believe we're entering this era of error mitigation and error mitigation just means that we're going to be able to reduce the errors and correct for the errors on the signal level um, machine learning has a very big component of this of how we can kind of look for anomalies in the errors in the hardware and account for it um, there is a lot of work being done by co- groups like microsoft where if they can figure out how to do this topological error-correcting approach, then they will be very much ahead of many of the companies out there, and many of the research groups, uh, by about hundreds to a thousand times. Wow. Uh, but again, that's an approach that I think is more down the line, uh, is what we're seeing. So we're going to have to rely on more of the mitigation techniques.
0: That's something that so, actually I've uh, studied a little bit of in the condensed matter that I've done, where it's like, when you get to these, like they're like... Uh, equivalence classes so just like in normal topology you can't tell the difference between uh, a cup and um, a bagel like correct you get those types of uh uh, quantum ground states that that appear so you're not able to tell the difference between two ground states because they're topologically equivalent
1: and this is a problem actually the d-wave machine has a lot of issues with when uh when when going through problems of degeneracy now the d-wave machine after using it a little bit more extensively over the last year, I I really think it's a a lot of untapped potential in this tool uh, Mm. in representing uh, various problems. Uh, Specifically these, if you can map, it's it's essentially this this challenge is finding people who can map these business problems to Cubos. And Cubos is a quadratic, unconstrained binary optimization problem. It's a very specific subset of uh, integer programming and problems that when, when, when put in this form, uh, can be used on this device, but many problems can be mapped there. Even when they're in a different type of problem space, they can be mapped there. Maybe with a bit more variables, maybe with a little bit different constraints. But it's quite beautiful what you can represent in this device. Um, the challenge, though, in the annealing approach has always been the fact that there is problems that you're naturally going to find degeneracy, meaning you're going to find solutions in multiple buckets, which yeah. may not be optimal for um, some of these approaches. Um, but, but in a bigger picture, it, it, it might not matter. And just finding any of these solutions could be enough. Um, so, uh, yeah, and they've tried to approach this in the, um, for example, in the finance space for portfolio optimization, which currently our computers are limited to about 40 assets, which is, you know, maximum 40 assets for, uh, for this portfolio. And then our computers just don't have enough power to make it uh, quick enough to have a, a valuable response. Hmm. So... These, these quantum computers will definitely extend the reach of that. That's a more immediate one. They're deploying it to risk analysis. I think in the next five to ten years, because it's a little bit more complex. Um, and then they're also applying it to the chemistry space in simulation of these particles and ways that they can uh, represent the ground energy states, which help a lot with protein folding or other forms of molecular and materials development.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess just like from like the you know your your area of optimization, like it, it gets hard to find these um, solutions like i' say you want to find the minimum of something of, of some like um, you know multi-system graph kind of thing multi-dimensional graph it, it gets hard to find those when there could be multiple uh, uh, you know turning points or multiple multiple minimums and then you're you're trying to find the global minimum right and those those other minimums right. kind of they they mess you up
1: yeah, and, and it's, it's an interesting problem and in how they approach it. I mean, the main benefit of using this annealing technology, uh, funny enough, um, Fujitsu, which is a, a Jap- I believe Japanese company, they've basically built a massive classical annealer. So it takes these processes, uh, these principles that D-Wave's really trying to exploit uh, and, and really tries to simulate it all classically with the best resources available. So they're able to create great simulators, and there, there's actually a lot of potential of just even representing problems in these simulators, because... Again, these are just computational tools. These are just tools for uh, the business world, for scientists, for engineers, for mathematicians, for uh, uh, hopefully a lot more fields in the future to reevaluate how they approach some of the problems they currently face uh, from a computational perspective. Um, So they're doing it from a very classical perspective. And really, uh, the advantage from a quantum perspective ends up being you can take advantage of quantum tunneling between these uh, local minima. So you can imagine, Imagine it almost like a, a well of energy, similar to these um, problems in physics where you have a um, you know en- uh, you know your particle going into a square well or a uh, mm-hmm. oscillator, and and you're thinking about how do I find the minimum energy? Where where is that in the system? Um, now, in in the quantum perspective, you can essentially the advantage comes from the fact that you won't have to heat up the system for it, the particle to go up out of it and then come back you can essentially take advantage of tunneling so it can go through these um through this topological terrain and go to these minimum points um whereas the classical will not be able to do this but essentially why it's important for us to still develop the classical methods is so we can benchmark and see what is the limits of what we can do classically um and really what advantage are we going to bring with these devices
0: mm-hmm. and like i've seen a little bit of that from like the quantum uh, field theory perspective where they have like you know, these like instanton solutions to quantum uh, tunneling and they, and it's all about taking the classical solution and then perturbing it and, uh, and like seeing how it behaves. Right. It, so it, it's, it's interesting stuff. So I think we'll end it just with the last question. So Jake, you've mentioned some great stuff that quantum computing can do. What do you see, like what's something that you want, you would want to do with the, with, you know, as the technology advances.
1: Yeah. yeah, and it's a great ask because uh, this kind of leads into what I'd like to go closer to um, with what I'm working on. Um, so currently, I've been working on with uh, actually some of the accounting and finance community in the natural language processing space. And really, they're they're kind of interested in finding ways to extract tons of information from uh, documents that are publicly available, but... People have to spend thousands of hours shifting through these companies to really analyze and understand what these companies are doing. So a lot of that data is in text and not just in tables. And what I've been doing and working with them is to extract that. Um, But what we're also approaching simultaneously in this time is... uh, today's available quantum natural language processing approaches using NISC um, devices, noisy intermediate scaled quantum devices, which we have available today. Um, And we're already starting to see where the potential of them can be um, tapped into. It's a bit in the early stage of exploration, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, And natural language processing has the opportunity to affect so many industries. And that's where I see a lot of value right now, because um, I really get driven by the value that can be brought from this and that's what drives me in quantum computing and I really am a bit skeptic of, of some of the ways of that can kind of work today so I really try to find um, those bridges uh, and and really uh, really understand where the bridges can be made so Quantum natural language processing is a pretty unexplored, but some of these research groups and companies are really starting to tap into it, uh, and I really uh, personally would like to see some opportunity there so uh, because I think it would have difference? a great impact in some fields.
0: Like I've, I've kind of, I know a little bit. About, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you in terms of coding, but I know a little bit about natural language processing. What's the difference between like the classical and the quantum version of that?
1: Well, really, it's about tapping into... I mean, quantum machines are very, very inspired by probabilistic approaches in um, computer science. So probabilistic programs um, and and a lot of that approach. When you're looking at NLP, a lot of the more state-of-the-art stuff, especially with machine learning and AI, rely very much on these probabilistic methods of uh, representing the uh, word space and a lot of the potential options. Um, So I think there's going to be... A lot of potential there for when you represent these problems probabilistically um, to run them through particular algorithms on quantum computers that we're starting to realize uh, thrive in these probabilistic environments. Um, Now, I would say one of the the caveats to this is we still have to reach another hardware paradigm shift, which is this uh, theoretically proposing quantum RAM. And the quantum RAM is a critical critical component we need to really interact with quantum machine learning or any of the machine learning or linear algebra type of enhancements of quantum computing because what it does is it is an efficient way to store quantum information without having to read it every time you know we're not, without having to measure it every time and re-input re- it into the system it would essentially live in the quantum computer uh coherently it could use its output and then take it as an input again, similar to how we use storage in quant- in regular RAM in a, in a classical computer, um, hmm. but we wouldn't have to basically look inside every time to see if it's there. We, we would... As as Essentially, build a reliable system that would allow us to continue this um, quantum computing process uh, right. locally, um, and that will open the door for many other fields in the space.
0: Like even like I've done some Spark. I learned a little bit of Spark and stuff, and it's like mm-hmm. um, where like the the type of uh, this state of the art kind of cloud computing is they'll have, you can write your code and it waits kind of to execute it till the last till you really tell it to, and like this kind of yep. quantum RAM is kind of taking that to a next level where it's kind of like probabilistically you're reading this data almost
1: yeah i mean it would be most beneficial for the quantum devices specifically Mm -hmm. because these basically have you know today they have a lifetime of like when when you run a computation there's a certain gate depth is what you call it and this is how long how many essentially steps you can take before uh you get decoherence and, and errors start to really concatenate um so the thing is you want to run it in these short lived cycles Um, take that information and then basically store it and then run it in another short-lived cycle of the problem. So you kind of compartmentalize the problems into pieces, take the results and take that information and compile it together. Right now we're doing that classically, but it would be fantastic if we do it on the quantum level because there's just so much more we could do with it uh, in terms of algorithms and and value. And I think that'll be the next, uh, hopefully the next 10 years We're going to see these quantum RAM devices maybe a bit more accessible. I think error correction is going to have to be a big factor. And then I think in the next 20 years uh, to 25 years, fault tolerance will start to be a lot more accessible, where it's just really going to be a matter of scaling these products to have millions of qubits, like we have millions and trillions of of, uh, transistors. Um, And and we really have the the design protocols to to make these a little bit more scalable. Again, controversial topic because I think there's some that believe uh, in in other ways we'll we'll achieve fault tolerance, uh, even in terms of architecture. One we didn't get to discuss today was uh, about Xanadu, which is a fantastic continuous quantum architecture. They're actually based out of Toronto. Um, So they have a very interesting approach as well, where they're um, not going with a discrete quantum computer, but they're sending uh, continuous streams of photons through waveguides and able to them in ways to create Gaussian distributions. Uh, something called Gaussian Boson sampling is one of the uh, the key pieces that we're working on, where they find something called the Hafnian of a of a matrix and Hamiltonians, where it can be a very valuable parameter in certain. Um, you know, um, it's called the Hafnian. Yes, is a mathematical parameter that they can find that is very valuable for certain clustering problems hmm. and graph problems within uh, mathematics.
0: Okay. All right. I think it we'll would be like. In...
1: Oops. Yeah, sorry. It would.
0: I was gonna say I think I, we'll end it there. Do you want to plug anything, or like if if they want to if if someone wants to reach um, your startup, what what would they look up?
1: Yeah, so it's still in the early stages, and right now we're in the incubator stage at CDL. So um, I'm still in the uh, formation phase of a lot of the uh, commercialization components. And hopefully by the um, this time the program uh, is really in full fruition, um, we will we will see where we're at. Um, and yeah, I think. Uh, in terms of, you can always reach out to me um, at my email or LinkedIn. You can just uh, jake.malieros, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-O-S at gmail.com. Uh, you can also just reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or any other uh, platforms as you have access. And uh, yeah, I'd love to discuss more if you're interested in these topics. And uh, yeah.
0: All right, well, thanks again for joining me, Jake. Uh, you know, this is so what I call the Elon Musk of of Canada. So uh, it was a pleasure having you on. All right, thanks guys for listening.